Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're talking about the ark and the temple, meeting God in the past, present, and future. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road in a series that We're calling Ark and Temple, where we're looking at two expressions of worship in the Hebrew Scriptures, an Ark of the Covenant within a tent that moves, and then a temple that is fixed, with implications for other Bible stories and even our life today. Uh, Today, we've got a fun one. We're going to talk about King Herod and the Temple, Herod the Great. We've all heard of Herod the Great. We're going to take a deep dive now into Herod and who he was and his relationship to the temple in Jerusalem. In 37 BC, Herod the Great was named, quote, King of the Jews, unquote, by the Roman Senate. Uh, In gratitude for his promise to make this restive part of the world quiet and to keep the taxes coming, and so he would serve as a client kingdom under his Roman bosses, and they would make him the third richest man in the world. The title King of Jews is ironic for two reasons, right? I mean, that's the sign that hangs above Jesus head as he's crucified, king of the Jews. But for another reason, it's ironic because Herod wasn't Jewish, but rather Idumean. Uh, that's a nation of people living just south of Judea. He, his parents were converts, and so as such, not a, a native Jewish person, if you will, he can trace his lineage back to Esau in the Bible. Now, in a podcast last year, I explained why this is important. Back in Genesis chapter 26, In a biblical town called Beersheba down in the Negev Desert, way down in the south, there is a well that you can find today dug by the patriarch Isaac. What's really poignant about this well is that as he's settling there in Beersheba, he doesn't realize that a family crisis now has taken place. Uh, Esau, coming in from the field, has sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of stew. It's not a pretty story. Uh, Esau is the firstborn and by lineage and right, uh, it should be his blessing to be handed down by his father. But he's also a person who lives of his appetites. And while Jacob is a trickster, his name means trickster or tripper upper, and he tricks Esau into, you know, into a contract that Esau had no intention of keeping. As a matter of fact, when the blessing is stolen from him, he wants to kill Jacob in a murderous rage. But Jacob, while his story is unattractive in many, many ways, Jacob could grow. Esau never would grow. Esau uh, would marry foreign wives, which his father would ask him not to do. Esau would just simply be inert in a way that a patriarch could not be inert, so that Esau was never really intended to be the person of the blessing, and his people were not intended to be people of the blessing. And now we fast forward to the world of Jesus, in which, or the world in which Jesus is born, rather, and a descendant of Esau becomes a madman king. Herod lived entirely by his appetites. If you want to see why Jacob was the one intended for the blessing, you need look no farther than the monarch uh, at the time of the birth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, we have a little scene, a little snapshot, if you will, of Herod's mind. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. And this was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. 
There is no extra biblical account of the massacre of the innocents of Bethlehem as Herod was trying to kill the the king foretold by the Magi, if you will. Uh, we don't really know if it, it actually happened, but it is completely in keeping with Herod's personality. I, Herod executed three of his own sons and his favorite wife. Uh, Augustus was reported to have remarked it's better to be one of Herod's dogs than to be one of Herod's children. He had 2,000 bodyguards, and he was vile. He was a vile man, but he was also a builder. And like any good despot with a fat bank account, he controlled three aspects of their lives. And I want to talk about those three so that we can understand the total control Herod had over his world. The first aspect of community life, if you will, is he controlled their commerce. Herod controlled their commerce with a newly built a super city, a port called Caesarea Maritima that was constructed of hydraulic concrete that had just been invented. And not only was it a large uh, a large place to, to conduct commerce, it was also a pleasure dome to lure ships off of the Mediterranean Sea. It was actually plastered white. And at the end of the day, the sun, the, the western sun would shine upon it and it would gleam and lure the grain boats that were traveling between Egypt and Greece and Egypt and Greece and Egypt and Greece would lure them off uh, to go to the racetrack or to the theater. And then also to rows of chambers of commerce. That really is a name, right? But we get our chamber of commerce from this chambers of commerce that would connect the caravans from the interior with the grain ships that now have docked and Herod gets a piece of it all. Every ticket, every transaction, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. He controlled their commerce. Herod also controlled their defense. He controlled it with a super weapon called Masada, tabletop fortress, which is remarkable. It's impressive enough as it sits over the Dead Sea. And later in the in the Jewish revolt against the Romans, it would become a place where the last holdouts would actually commit suicide, but rather than uh, submit to Rome. And there's a famous famous story of Masada that way. Before it, though, however, it was an engineering marvel, both a fort and a palace, a place for Herod to retreat to because it was full of water. Now, it's ironic to say this because this part of the Judean desert is the hottest place on planet Earth, and it's the lowest place on planet Earth, and it's the driest place on planet Earth. But what they get are winter washes. So they get the winter rains from the top of the ridge of the Great Rift Valley, rains on Jerusalem, and then it would just sort of wash down and flow down into aquifers that will come up like oases. So the city of Jericho, which has been there for 10,000 years, is basically an oasis on the top of an aquifer where the winter rains sort of drain down through the limestone and they get all filtered and everything, and it comes up pure. What Herod's engineers learned to do was to capture that wash and to filter it into huge cisterns, which made the mountain of Masada sort of a Swiss cheese of amazing cisterns. So many of these cisterns and so many of them filled with water that 1,000 men could live for 10 years on the water that they had collected inside of the mountain of Masada. It's an engineering marvel. You can't see the interior, uh, but you can know that just like Caesarea Maritima, a port made from nothing with hydraulic concrete, now you have a mountain turned into a water fortress. Herod had so much water that he had two swimming pools uh, to show his vast wealth. In the world with very little water, Herod could swim and enjoy the water. Well, Herod controlled their commerce and he controlled their defense. And then finally, he controlled their worship or their thoughts of God, which is our topic today. 
We know this about the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, we know that Solomon built it, and we know that the Babylonians destroyed the temple that Solomon built them in 586 BC. They they completely tore it down and despoiled it, along with the Ark of the Covenant, never to be found again. Now, when the exiles returned 70 years later, which was quite unexpected, it was because of the toppling of Babylon by Cyrus the Persian, who had a more a liberal attitude towards conquered peoples. I, quite frankly, I think he liked for them to live at home and pay their taxes and pay him. Uh, so they get to go home, thanks to Cyrus, and the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in our Old Testament are about this rebuilding time. Uh, just m- musing about future podcasts, and I want you to know that by way of a commercial, uh, this next year we're going to be looking at books of the Bible and explaining what they do and why they land in the library. And so we can talk about Ezra and Nehemiah and, and what this point might be. But there's another little red book of the, of the Hebrew Scriptures called Haggai, and the prophet Haggai would also weigh in when it comes to the rebuilding of the temple. For this book concerns a lack of focus when it comes uh, to getting busy and rebuilding, uh, rebuilding their world as they returned. I want to remind you the purpose of prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures. Prophets, prophets speak the truth to power. When God's people ask for a king, God would say, well, you can have a king, but you always have to have a prophet. And in this case, Haggai would speak to uh, to both the religious leaders and the civic leaders because they weren't doing right. Now, they weren't rebuilding the temple. And that's curious to me because according to 2 Samuel chapter 7, the first podcast of this series, God didn't want a temple. But the problem here in this new world is that the exiles weren't really doing anything as they got back, worship-wise. They didn't have any intention. They were just staying busy, staying busy, and they were winging it. And so this is what God says in the book of Haggai when it regards the rebuilding of the temple. This is Haggai chapter 1, verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you fared. You've sown much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And you that earn wages earn wages and put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you fared. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. So they rebuild. Now they rebuild it with modest materials. And Solomon had a big budget and he brought in cedar from Lebanon and gold and things from far away. They would build this out of scrub pine, but they would rebuild it and they would have a temple and they would have a place to sacrifice properly. And then later the prophet would say this about the house that they built. He said, don't despair. This will get better. They're sad because it's not fancy like the one that Solomon built. And in verse nine of the second chapter of Haggai, the prophet says, the later splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, in time, in time, this will even outshine the glory of Solomon's temple. Now, this would prove to be true with this prophecy, just not in the way that anyone would think. But some 20 years before the birth of Jesus, Herod would have his own big idea, as this podcast began with the big idea of David's. Herod's big idea would be to exert his control over their religion by turning this modest temple into one of the largest religious complexes in the ancient world. He began by shaving off the top of the of the hill, Mount Moriah. This is the highest hill of the little ridge of Jerusalem. He, he shaved it off and, and he built a tabletop structure 
that you can see today. He turned the precinct around the temple from 17 acres to 36 acres of a tabletop structure. And the the temple mount was constructed of bricks weighing anywhere between 100 tons to almost 700 tons. And it's still a mystery how they were quarried, how they would travel there, and how they were laid. They're just that big. The Romans were able to tear down the temple, and I'll say something about that later, but they never could tear down the temple mount. In addition uh, to a temple structure on top of the mount, that is twice the height of the Dome of the Rock today. So think about the Jerusalem skyline that you know, or perhaps a newscast, and you've got that golden dome behind. This thing is twice the height, so it can be seen for miles. And you can only imagine how the crowds would thrill I like to use the analogy of of the thrill of the Columbian World's Exposition in the late 19th century with the invention of the Ferris wheel. And the Ferris wheel was only made possible because of a newly invented structured steel. The the tallest building in America before had been the Washington Monument. No one had ever been that high before. So the Ferris wheel would just be kind of a wow thing because, because no one could ever be up in the heavens looking down. Same thing with the temple. If you could see something that tall, see something that big, It was intended to inspire. This was the house of God. And then there were three courts for the crowds to gather and to look at it and to worship at the foot of it. Uh, There was a court of the Gentiles, which is basically just a big bazaar. It's a market with this long stoa, about 800 yards long, all sorts of things to sell and to buy. And this is the place where Jesus overturned the money changers in the last week of his life. Remember, he rides into town on, on a colt and People cry Hosanna, and they think that he's a king come to save the temple, and instead he attacks the temple. He overturns the tables, and he calls them a den of robbers, which is a quotation of Jeremiah 7, 11. And what I like to say is when you read Jeremiah, and you read it in the original language, the Hebrew is more specific. They weren't a den of robbers. They were a cave of outlaws. That place down where Masada sits has caves where where all sorts of criminals would hide, and it was ugly, and it was cruel. And he said that this bazaar was tawdry, and it turned the house of God into something more like that. So that's the court of the Gentiles. Then you had the court of the women, or the Jewish women, uh, not Gentile women. And then you had the court of the Israelites, sort of an inner, almost like a almost like a Russian egg. You're going from inner layer to inner layer to inner layer. And now, lately, over COVID, with the discovery of a Roman road, it's beneath the Palestinian neighborhood, but it goes down the hill from the Temple Mount. Uh, It will soon be open to the public. It's a a Roman road built by Pontius Pilate for pilgrims with a marketplace on either side, leading from the Pool of Siloam to the southern steps. And with the southern steps of the temple, the main entrance to the Temple Mount, lots and lots of ritual baths called mikvaot, that's a a plural for mikvah, mikvahot, everywhere on the temple steps, turning this this event into a turnstile uh, experience, if you will, for tens of thousands of people all at once to shop and get wet in a world with very little water. This was a place to have a vacation called the Feast of the Passover. And all the while, they're spending money, and Herod gets his peace. And in Mark chapter 13, which also happens during the last week of Jesus' life, uh, his, his disciples are looking at the temple. They're just sort of taking it all, taking it all in. And this is what Jesus said. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. And then Jesus asked him, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left upon another. All will be thrown down 
Well, some three and a half decades later, this would come true. Uh, In 66 AD, a Jewish revolt began and a war with Rome that would involve uh, legions coming down uh, that would uh, attack Jerusalem. And on August 70 AD would be the destruction of the temple, the complete destruction of the temple. So complete, we're not even sure how they did it. They're big stones that lay at the base of the Temple Mount that weigh tons, and they're just there because they can't be moved. They've been there for 2,000 years. Uh, With a second revolt, a century later, the Jewish people would just be expelled from Judea, not to return to 1948. But today, today, the Temple Mount remains. And if you look at it, especially from the Mount of Olives, if you look at the city of Jerusalem, what you see is a world city that looks to have an altar in the middle of it. The Temple Mount, in effect, becomes a large a large worship place, even though Hebrews can't go to the top of it now, it's owned by the, it's owned and administrated by the kingdom of Jordan. Uh, and so Jews, faithful Jews will pray along the Western wall where the Holy of Holies used to be. They'll pray along the bottom, even though the Temple Mount is, is hotly contested and can be a place of great rancor. It also appears to be an altar in the holiest city on earth, which is probably a legacy that Herod didn't imagine on his own. So friends, I like to say that Herod's temple is a good analogy for what we need to avoid when it comes to our churches, which is a confusion of means and ends. If our churches are merely an edifice, that's a confusion of means and ends. If they are merely an endowment, a confusion of means and ends. If they are merely a place to uh, to inspire us uh, with their beauty, that, that, then they're a confusion of means and ends. That could be a, that could be a museum. Our churches are conduits to the holy, at least they're intended to be, uh, a place where we can find union with God and with each other in community, or at least they can be. And when they, when they do that, then they can be beautiful, and they will be beautiful in the way that God intends them to be. But let's not stop short and build the house and forget to put God in it. Thank you, friends. We'll keep this going. I'm here with my wife, Becky, and we've been members of St. Luke's since 2015, and we just think it's one of the greatest churches we've ever attended, and for a couple of reasons. Um, One of the big reasons for me is I think Rich uses the word, we're a neighborhood church or neighborhood, and I think St. Luke's really epitomizes that, uh, that everybody's friendly, everybody's like two neighbors talking over the back fence about what's going on in their lives. And when it comes to getting involved, the church really covers a large spectrum. Uh, For me, I think it's fantastic that the church has an unbelievable children's program. Um, I wish that our son could have been as fortunate to be in a program like that when he was growing up. Um, And then the other end of the spectrum is the Founders Place, which is fantastic. Um, As a family that cares for an older adult, um, it's very important to have a program like that at St. Luke's. And I know Becky's very involved in many programs here at the church as well. The most amazing thing to me about this church when you walk in the door is the warmth and friendliness. I've yet to meet someone that didn't speak back when you said good morning. I love the breakfast. Uh, I was here a short period of time when Rich sent out an email that if you were interested to be a lay Eucharist minister, that you could come to a meeting. Maybe I'd been here about a year and a half, 
I was like, no kidding, that's possible here. I came to the meeting and then you could be involved and serve God in any way, pretty much that you like. I was invited shortly after that to be on the altar guild. I got to teach vacation Bible school, although I'd done that years ago here from being a member at another church. That was very fun. Uh, there are lots of women's Bible studies that are open to everyone. They're not closed. I, for a while, I attended four different ones here for at least a couple of years. And that was a great opportunity to meet other women my age and get to know people at the church. Most recently, I've been going and learning bridge for the last two years. And that's been a wonderful ministry that this church started uh, as an outreach program. And I love that we're so friendly and we're so welcoming other people to join. We've just had a wonderful experience. And when we leave here, my husband says almost every time, why did we wait so long to join this church? I think, I think, if anything, if you're looking for a relationship with the church where you can get involved, and when you say get involved, it doesn't mean you have to be a volunteer forever. You can just be a helper in many situations. And there are times when Rich says he needs more help with the children's programs or some volunteers. Um, I think you can pretty much do whatever you want to do here at the church in a very, very comfortable way. I think, in conclusion, uh, there are a lot of ways to get involved, and all of those can be found in the bulletins, they can be found online, or you can simply ask someone how you can be more involved here at St. Luke's. But it's a wonderful place to do that, and I promise you, you will be very happy.